This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Scripture reading today will be taken from Esther chapter 8 to chapter 10. Sister Ruth will be reading the scripture for us this morning. Today's scripture reading will be taken from chapter, Esther chapter 8, verse 3 to Esther 10, verse 3. Chapter 8. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agatite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was in the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Ada. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. 
chapter 9. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Ada, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adelia, Aridatha, Pamashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa were reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Ada, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Ada, and on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That's why rural, rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Ada as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Ada, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor. 
that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he eschewed written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at a time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Chapter 10 King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jews was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This is the word of God. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we just pray for hearts which will be willing to listen to the last part of Esther, to know who you are, so that we will always have strong faith in you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever been uh, bullied? Have you ever been powerless against stronger people? Have bad things been done to you by bad people? When I was a student, I remember there was this guy... For whatever reason, he just didn't like me. He uh, made my life really miserable. He put me down in front of others at school, said bad things about me, got out of his way to irritate me. The worst thing he ever did was, once I remember, I was just sitting there all by myself, minding on my own business, and he came and he smashed this uh, uh, orange or mandarin, I could figure out which one it was, but it was one or the other, onto my head. And I still remember the pulp and the juice right, coming down from my hair and the feeling of being really humiliated and angry and ashamed. I wonder whether you faced those sort of people before, maybe at school or you know, at work. I mean, obviously, I hope no one smashed orange on your head. But you know, I wonder whether you've ever experienced those sort of people in your life before. Now, I ask the question today, what difference does it make to be a Christian? What difference does it make to have God on your side? Now last week, we saw that God had defeated the enemy of his people. Haman the Agagite, who was of the tribe of Amalekites, the enemy of God's people. 
Now, at the end of chapter 7, Haman wanted to impale Mordecai the Jew on this tall pole, right? Taller than the ceiling. But by the end of the chapter, we saw that God had organized and shaped things so that it was Haman, the enemy of the Jews, who was impaled on that pole instead. But as we come to chapter 8, we see that the danger has not ended for the Jews, right? The danger is still very, very real. Haman might be gone, but the spirit of Haman, in a sense, still lives on through his edict. This edict was a very powerful edict, which basically allowed anyone and everyone to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old women and children, on the 13th day of the 12th month of Ada, and to plunder their goods. Now, that's a very comprehensive edict of destruction, right? And this edict, if we remember from chapter 1 and 2, cannot be revoked because once the king, King Xerxes, signs off his edicts, signs off his decrees, they cannot be revoked, cannot be repealed, and cannot be rejected. So Haman the Agagite is dead, but his edict is still very, very much alive and is a sentence of death for God's people. Now, I look around you, and I realize most of you were not around in 1969, so you probably are a bit young to remember the race riots of 1969, although you might study at school. My grandfather lived through those race riots, and he told me this really interesting story of how my youngest uncle, his youngest son, was playing rugby at school in those days, and that afternoon, my uncle, my youngest uncle, actually had rugby practice. But the rugby master somehow knew that something was going to happen, something bad was going to happen. So he told all the rugby boys to go home early. Go home early, right? Something bad is going to happen. Call your parents to pick you up. And so my grandfather went to pick up my youngest uncle, and they drove home. Two hours later, on that very same road that they had traveled back, there had been barriers put on the road, and all the cars were stopped, and people were being pulled out of their cars and murdered. So my grandfather told me that it was a terrifying day that day because he felt like he was under the sentence of death, right? You know, for your skin color, for your race, for your language, your name, you may be murdered, right? You're under the sentence of death. And that's how the Jews would have felt. Haman's edict or this sentence of death hanging over them, right? They had 11 months before, earlier on now, they have nine months left before the sentence of death. So what is the answer to Haman's edict, which represents a sentence of death? It was to have a counter-edict, right? Because this edict would destroy, it would be disaster and destruction for the Jews. So the answer that King Xerxes, together with Queen Esther and Mordecai, came up with was a counter-edict. So there is Haman's edict to destroy the Jews, and there's Mordecai's edict. Mordecai's edict, in a sense, is meant to nullify, cancel out, and reverse Haman's edict. And so when you read the language of Mordecai's edict, it's exactly the same word for word to Haman's original edict. The only difference is that the names have been changed, right? The words are the same, but the names change. So now instead of the people destroy, kill, and enlighten the Jews, the Jews now are given liberty to destroy, kill, and enlighten those people who want to kill them. It is an edict to protect themselves, an edict to avenge themselves against their enemies. Now, we could easily say, well then, why don't we finish 
the book of Esther in chapter 8, right? Because after all, now that you've got this edict, why do you need to worry about what happens next? Surely the Jews are safe, right? The God's people have nothing to worry about. But how wrong we would be, right? Now, okay, so Mordecai's edict is this edict of self-defense. Any of you know Rwanda in Africa? Anybody know Rwanda? So Rwanda is this tiny, tiny place. I think it looks like the size of Singapore in the middle of Africa. And in 1994, uh, it is historically known as the genocide in Rwanda. Right? During that time, Rwanda was made up of 85% Hutus and 14% Tutsis. And so in 1994, the Prime Minister's plane crashed and there was like chaos in the country and all the Hutus decided that they wanted to get rid of the Tutsis. They called the Tutsis cockroaches, right? And they wanted to stamp out the cockroaches. And so the task that they set for themselves was to wipe out the whole 14% of the Tutsis in Rwanda. Neighbors killed neighbors. People were stopped on the road and murdered. Priests were murdered. Even those who went to the church were murdered. Even husbands killed their wives. It was a massacre. And so within 100 days, 800,000 Tutsis were killed by Hutus. Now, I think that would be similar to the situation in Mordecai's time in Persia, right? The Jews were a very small minority. I wouldn't even know if they were 14% of the population, probably even less. If the Persians and the other nationalities living in Persia at that time wanted to kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews, it doesn't matter whether there's an edict or not. How can 14% of the Tutsis protect themselves against the 85% Hutus, right? You can't protect yourself against the majority, you will still die and be completely overwhelmed and murdered. It would be a bloodbath. And so, Mordecai's edict in itself is not enough, right? God needs to act to protect his people. So we see that happening straight after the edict is announced, right? When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing raw garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of linen. If you remember, at the very beginning of the chapter, Mordecai the Jew was in sackcloth and ashes. Right? He was, his, his clothes were a sackcloth and he was mourning and weeping because of the death sentence. But now there's this great reversal. He's wearing these raw garments of blue and white and a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. Someone in my Bible study said, hey, how come the king can lend his crown to, to Mordecai? It seems a bit, seems a bit uh, lax, right? But what it's really saying here is that Mordecai has now undergone this great reversal. He's now given the, the power of royalty himself. For the Jews... This was now a time of happiness, joy, gladness, and honor. There was feasting and celebrating. So Mordecai goes from sackcloths to the royal garments of royalty. The Jews go from weeping and mourning and wailing to celebration. Now why is this happening? I want us to pay attention to this word honor, right? There was a time of happiness, joy, gladness, and honor. The word here, honor, comes about because they feel that they're being honored for being Jews. Right now they have an identity. They now have official recognition by the king. 
In chapter 1 and 2, do you remember Queen Esther was told to keep her Jewishness hidden? She was told not to reveal herself as Jew. Because in chapter 1 and 2, to be a Jew was something to be ashamed about. It was to be something that you were not to tell other people. But now the Jews, in a sense, can come out of the closet, right? They now can be proud of who they are. They can be proud of their status and recognition as Jews. They go from nobodies to somebodies. But the reversal goes even beyond that, right? Not just from nobodies to somebodies. The people of other nationalities now want to become Jews. What a reversal. In chapter 1 and 2, Queen Esther doesn't want to reveal she's a Jew. She's ashamed of being Jewish now. In chapter 8, the other people want to become Jews. Now why do they want to become Jews? It says that because the fear of the Jews had seized them. That's a strange reason to become a Jew, isn't it? I mean, I can understand people wanting to learn Korean or something because, you know, they watch a lot of K-drama or K-pop bands or you want to go to Australia because of the lifestyle. But you want to become a Jew because of fear? Why? What do you mean fear? Why do you want to become a Jew because of the fear of the Jews? This theme of fear is something that keeps being repeated now in this section of Esther. Many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. And then chapter 9, no one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And then the civil service, the nobles, the satraps, the governors, the king's administrators helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai had seized them. Now, I think that the right way of understanding is people wanted to become Jews because they recognized that God was working through the Jews, right? They were working through Mordecai. They had seen how Haman had fallen from his great height and been impaled. And now they've seen the rise of Mordecai and they recognize God is at work and they feared God. You see that phrase there in verse 2, no one could stand against them. That's very similar to what Haman's wife Zeresh said earlier. Since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, surely you cannot stand against him. So the fear that the, the people felt was a fear which we've already seen working through the community of the Persians because they recognized God was the one at work. Because if you think about it, humanly speaking, right, why should the majority fear the minority? It's usually the minority that fears the majority. Here, the reason why they fear is because they recognize God is at work and He is, unable, he is able to prevail against all His enemies. So they decide, instead of standing against God, I will become a Jew to be on God's side. So the faithful day comes, which is the 13th day of the 12th month of Ada. And on this day, both the edicts come into effect. Haman's edict and Mordecai's counter-edict. Now what happened that day? On that day, the enemy of the Jews, those who hated God's people, they were isolated. They were alone without allies. Because all the other people, all the other nationalities, they either became Jews or 
they chose not to stand against people or they helped God's people because they recognized God was with them. Now this can only be the work of God, right? Because again, it's like the Hutus and the Tutsis. The Hutus would have no reason to fear the Tutsis being such a small minority. But here on this very day, we saw that on the first day in the capital of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Pashanda, Delphon, Esparta, Paratha, Adalea, Aradatta, Pashmatha, Arishai, Aradai, and Vai Zata. Now, why is this important? These names are important because it actually shows us that the book of Esther is God's mighty work in ancient history. It's not a parable, it's not a fantasy, it's not literature. These names tell us that there is truth in the book of Esther. I remember many years ago, I spoke to this atheist guy. He was telling me in a, quite a mocking voice that the Bible is just made-up stories, right? You know, the Bible is just all these made-up stories. So I challenged him and I said, have you ever read the Bible for yourself? Because I, I wasn't a Christian before, but when I read the Bible, I realized that the Bible has the ring of truth. And so these names in verse 7, 8, and 9, right? Pashadanta, Delphon, Asphata, Horatha, Adela, and all the rest. This is the ring of truth in Esther. Like, you can't make up these names, right? These are the real names of the ten sons of Haman who were killed and who were impaled. So God, we see here, is indeed a mighty rescuer who acts in real history and not in fantasy or in literature. But not, is it, not only is the Bible, the writer of Esther, trying to show us that God is a mighty rescuer in ancient history, in reality, but he's also trying to show us that God right, is a faithful God in biblical history. Both in the capital of Susa as well as the king's prophecies, the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now this is very, very strange. Because in Haman's edict, and in Mordecai's edict, which was exactly the same language, the same words, they were allowed to take plunder. So why did they choose not to take plunder? Because of biblical history. As we saw last week, God had been working through history to protect, to watch over, and to bless His people. So in Abraham... God said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And as they go into the promised land, Moses and, Ex and the Exodus, God had actually said, when they entered to the promised land, you must kill and blot out the name of the Amalekites under heaven. Because in biblical history, as they went into the promised land, the Amalekites backstabbed them and attacked them from behind when they were tired, and they had no fear of God. And so as they come into the promised land, God appointed Saul, King Saul, as the first king. Okay, he was the first king of God's people, King Saul. One of the first tasks that God had told Saul was that he must go and attack the Amalekites and to totally destroy all that belongs to them. Well, you remember in 
biblical history that King Saul disobeyed God and he did not completely destroy the Malachites. Instead, he seized the plunder for himself. And that was the downfall of King Saul. Because he took the plunder from the Malachites instead of totally destroying them, God tore away the kingdom from King Saul. And so, thousands of years later in Persia, in the time of Mordecai, God's people remembered what happened in biblical history and they knew that God was working in this time and he would not be happy with them taking the plunder. He would be angry with them just as he was angry with King Saul. And so what we see here is that God was acting again similarly by protecting his people. So, humanly speaking, when God's people travel all the way from Egypt into the promised land to defeat all the people in the promised land, humanly speaking, it should not be possible. They're just a small bunch of people going to the land. But over and over again, we see that as they come into the promised land, what happens? God put the terror and fear of his people on the whole land. In the first place that they went to, in Jer- remember Rahab? Rahab said, there's a great fear of you which has fallen on all of us so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. And so in the very same way in Persia that we read about in Esther, God is also at work, right? Because there's this great fear of God's people, the Jews, and God himself because he's doing the same miraculous work again in Persia, protecting and rescuing his people. So, When we look at ancient history, God is the mighty rescuer who indeed rescued his people in Persia. But he's also a faithful rescuer because from the very promises that he's made to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, what he spoke to Samuel, to speak to King Saul, he is still doing even the time of Persia. And so today, if you go to Israel, so this is Israel, and this is the festival of Purim. I don't know what the big starfish represents, but you can see that the festival of Purim is a, is a festival of enjoyment and celebration, right? They also have these big elephants, right? Um, so, you know, the festival of Purim, what is it actually celebrating when the Jews are celebrating this every year in Israel and Jerusalem? What are they celebrating? They're celebrating that God is a faithful and mighty rescuer, right? They're remembering how all those years in Persia, this historical reality happened and God faithfully, just as he'd done and promised to Abraham and Moses and to Joshua, rescued and protected his people. So therefore, we're not Jews today. I, I don't know, no one here celebrates this festival of Purim, right? I don't even know what it is. But we are Christians. And we recognize that the same God who rescued God's people from Haman's edict in Persia all those years ago was actually pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the ultimate rescuer. The book of Esther, in a sense, points forward and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so, in Jesus, we have even greater certainty of God's rescue and faithfulness. 
I know that I was talking to some uh, teenage people recently, and I've been reading online about how, you know, as Christians, sometimes you get bullied on social media. Does that ever happen to you? You support things, or you like things, or you say things, and then people jump on you because you're Christian, or say Christian things. Social media is the place where all these things happen, right? Because, you know, it's anonymous, right? But then, in Jesus, Jesus has said this, right? I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. We have peace in Jesus, yes, but in this world you have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So you may be attacked by the Hamans in your life of this world on social media who hate God's people, hate God's values and seek to push down and uh, subdue God's people. But if God was able to protect his people from Haman in the times of Persia, then how much more now in the times of Jesus, right? Because in Jesus, we know that Jesus is the one who has overcome the world and has definitely brought us rescue against those who seek to oppress us that way. But it's not just that we have a faithful and mighty rescuer in Jesus and those who want to oppress us. But there are other more powerful, I guess, bullying forces out in this world. I was talking to someone who was really struggling with sin. He had a problem with uh, pornography addiction. It caused this person a lot of pain. And I wanted this person to hold on to the truth that God was this mighty rescuer and would continue to be with him in his struggle against Satan. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, which we studied this year, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, we live in a world where even though the world may be materialistic and ignores the reality of spiritual forces, but we as Christians know that behind a lot of the things that happen in this world is satanic force or power. I was uh, reading this book by this guy called Romeo Delaire, Shake Hands of the Devil. When I was reading out of Rwanda, this is the book that kept coming up over and over again that people recommended. He was the Canadian general who led the United Nations peacekeeping force when the genocide in Rwanda happened. And I don't know whether he was a spiritual person, but what happened in Rwanda changed the way he looked at life. This is what he said when someone asked him why he titled his book, Shake Hands with the Devil. He said, I know there is a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I've seen him, I've smelled him, and I've touched him. I know the devil exists, and therefore I know there is a God. So what he said was that when he would meet these people who were indiscriminately killing their neighbors and, and exhorting other people to kill other people, when he would meet them and shake their hands, he would look into their eyes, and he would see that even though on the exterior they looked human, but yet their eyes looked inhuman. Right? He said that they looked as if they were possessed by another force. And he was so stressed by his experience in Rwanda that he had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome, and he tried to take his own life four times. You can see there's a long documentary about him 
on the on YouTube. But we as Christians, we know that God is a mighty and faithful God. And in Jesus Christ, we have a faithful and mighty rescuer. And we know that, that Jesus has already defeated the devil and Satan. And so we do not fear the same way that the world fears. And so, because of that, we do not fear Satan. I think the, the last bully in this world is sin and death. I remember many years ago, I had a good friend. Her name was Eileen Chin. She was in university with me in Australia. She was a Christian, went to the same Christian fellowship, went to church to, with me in Singapore, then went to theological college a few years after me. And she worked with me. She was just beginning her ministry. When one day I said goodbye to her on Friday night, I went back home. On Saturday morning, I received a phone call to say that she actually died overnight, very suddenly. I met her parents. She was the only daughter of two loving parents. And it was very hard to process this, right? I mean, here was a, a young single person just beginning ministry, only daughter of uh, two parents, and uh, faithful Christian people too, and overnight died. But I guess the thing that we are able to find comfort is, in is that actually, ultimately, death has been swallowed up in victory, isn't it? Because God is mighty and is faithful, even death and sin has no power over us. And so 1 Corinthians 15, as we read in our responsive reading, says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So do we ever feel doubt about God? Do we feel powerless against these overwhelming, bullying powers in this world? We need to turn to God's Word. In the book of Esther it shows us God is mighty, God is faithful. And through Jesus, we don't have to fear because we know that God is greater than Haman and Satan and all the things that want to oppress us, sin and death itself. So if you struggle and you doubt, you are confronted with these powerful forces which seem like they're overpowering you, turn to the character of God and turn to Jesus Christ and you will find confidence and courage through Him. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you that you are a mighty God, that even in the book of Esther, how the majority was seeking to oppress and destroy the small minority of Jews there, that even through the power of Haman and his edict, you were able to bring rescue, you were able to bring fear among uh, the enemies, the, those who wanted to destroy the Jews, and that you were able to bring about this celebration of Purim, which remembers in ancient history the reality of your rescue and your faithfulness. Dear Father, we pray that we may understand biblical history and how this, this doesn't happen in isolation, but is part of your great character of being faithful to your promises, to Abraham, to Moses, to Samuel, to, uh, to King Saul, all the way to Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, we have seen the fulfillment of the promises in Esther. That in Jesus, we know that Satan is defeated. We know that the world is overcome. We know that sin and death has been defeated. 
And so we pray for ourselves that we may continue to have a strong faith because we know who you are and the power you have and to know the Son that you've sent for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, thank you, Pastor, for the sermon. We will now take some time to reflect and discuss on what we have heard. Uh, the questions are on the screen. So please turn to your closest neighbor and have a fruitful discussion. So question one, uh, what powerful people or forces threaten you? And two, how does knowing that you have a mighty and faithful God help you in your struggles? So maybe we can take about five, five minutes uh, yeah, for the discussion. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.